Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Abby Martin. And this is Robbie Martin. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us, guys. Well, there's a coup (laughs) underway in Venezuela, just as we were talking about Trump expanding the empire and fomenting regime change and upping drone strikes and bombing the, quote, shit out of terrorists and their families. Um, This happens. So we know that they had their sights set on Venezuela, the troika of tyranny, as John Bolton Mm -hmm. said. And just yesterday, Robbie, we just did a whole podcast on the Venezuela situation as well as a whole bunch of other things. So please check that out because that's where the main brunt um, of, you know, what's unfolding is is at right now. But we need all of you to be um, in line in solidarity with the Bolivarian movement and against regime change because I saw I see a lot of kind of just talking out of both sides of people's mouths. Maduro's bad. Maduro's an authoritarian dictator, but I oppose regime change. It's like, dude, what, why are we falling victim to this again? Yeah. Now is not you know? the time for that kind of wishy-washy bullshit posturing. I, I don't, no. I'm sick of seeing people acting like that. I mean, I've even seen some like paleo-conservative libertarians taking a stronger position than some of those career leftists like Mehdi Hassan and, and Greenwald. So... That says a lot. They're, they're some of the most anti, some of those people are super anti-socialist, but yet they are not saying those kind of things about Maduro right now because they understand how this normally goes. Marco Rubio is totally promoting it. Of course, he's a complete shill for South American neoconservative regime change plans, um, extremely anti-Cuban. And also, uh, who else have I seen um, promoting it? I, I, don't, I, I don't know. But, oh, God, um, everyone. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people are promoting it. And actually, it was funny. Chris Cuomo used Venezuelan sanctions and how they're squeezing the country and destabilizing it on purpose as like a counter argument against some conservative person on on CNN. So I found that bizarre, you know, to hear that kind of slip through. Chris Cuomo is like one of the douchiest, most hack Kendall dumbasses on TV. So to even hear him slip out with something like that was surprising. Because that is what's happening in Venezuela. So to talk about how the economy is in shambles and they're starving their people without mentioning anything about the U.S. crippling sanctions on them and how it's deliberate um, is completely dishonest. So surprised. Well, Venezuela is really, I think, out of all the countries in the world, aside from North Korea. That is by far and away the worst media depiction of painting a false reality that you literally can believe anything. And um, with Venezuela, it's, it's similar because you really can say whatever you want. And a lot of people just kind of arrogantly assert um, completely bald-faced lies as facts. Um, and they'll just tell you, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. People are starving, eating rats and breaking into zoos and eating the animals. And the thing is, um, if you look at the the country with actually the highest mal- malnourishment rates in the region, it's Haiti. Which has um, also been like sanctioned and, and just yeah. like me- not just sanctioned, but like neoliberal economic policies and World Trade Organization, um, World Bank has like destroyed that country. 
Yeah, it's like, yes, there are shortages of food and medicine. This is exacerbated by the oligarchs in the country, as well as U.S. Uh, relations, funding mm -hmm. of the opposition, and also, of course, the debilitating sanctions. But if you're honest about Venezuela, you acknowledge that there is no quote-unquote mass famine where people are starving, resorting to cannibalism, eating dogs and rats. That's just a complete falsehood. Of course. Um, and it's just so bizarre how like inflated and out of proportion this notion of like a starving nation, because if you really want to foment regime change on the premise of a starving nation, why aren't we talking about Haiti and why aren't we talking about Yemen? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, with of that course. logic, we should be invading Yemen. I was rewatching some of your Venezuelan episodes of Empire Files. And one of the interesting things somebody says when you're doing the man on the street interviews with people is that it's bizarre how the mainstream grocery chains, these international big grocery companies, they don't have things like toilet paper and flour and these necessary goods, but you go into like an independent mom and pop shop in Venezuela and they have everything. So it's right. like, it does seem very odd. Um, you know, so if you can't see that, that line between like a deliberate economic warfare to destabilize a country and this idea that Maduro is corrupt and starving his own people, it's, it's just unfortunate. Because it's obvious what's going on. Right. And check out um, me, Mike Preisner, and Boots Riley, and Venezuela Analysis, and Telesaur. Um, these are the best sources. <laughs> I hate to include Boots Riley, me, and Mike in that. But like we really have been out there really trying to counter this regime change propaganda and narrative. Um, and we've been doing a pretty good job. And we've been putting clips from our episodes on the ground. Um, and we've been showing a lot of um, the pro-government marches, which are comparable in size, as we know. Of course, they're completely censored by the Western media. And, and you look at the um, character of these marches, and they are black, indigenous, poor people. That's the base of Maduro's support. And, and you really have to ask yourself, why don't we hear from these Venezuelans? And it's just amazing. I mean, you see some of these people marching, and they're like, who the fuck is this guy? Who the hell is this guy that just declared himself president? Well, it's hilarious, too, because right after that, he was declared president. Um, there was uh, <clears throat> polls coming out showing that over 80% of the population in Venezuela had never even heard of him. <laughs> Just as an example of how much, how phony this is. It would be one thing if he was like almost famous, won the election, got like 40% right. of the vote, was super Like a Bernie popular. Sanders or something. Yeah. That would be one thing. And it would still be wrong for the U.S. to be like trying to like promote a coup but it's so not that that it's just absolutely cartoonish. It's one of the most like phony fictional things ever. And how weird is it too? You know, normally you and I, when we see th things kind of like this happen, we get paranoid and think it means something. But like if it doesn't lead to something, we usually don't take it too seriously. But a couple of weeks ago, actually, maybe mm -hmm. it was only a, a whole week ago, someone was editing the Wikipedia page to make this this candidate, this very unpopular no opposition way. leader, the president. No, I swear wow. to God. Someone, someone kept doing edits and people Holy. were like monitoring the edits and being like, why is someone keep editing the Wikipedia page to do this? And then the Trump administration edits reality to do it. Yep. That's yep. so super bizarre. And I think we need to be paying more attention to things like Wikipedia for signs wow. of what's to come. I mean, it's, it, it sounds bizarre, you know, but it it actually is kind of um, led up to this. There was something happening where they were laying, That's someone was stunning. laying down the propaganda framework first, you know. This guy, you know, I, I said this random guy, like just 
appoints himself president. People are like, he's not a random guy. He's the president of the National Assembly. And according to the Constitution, blibbity bloppity blue. Well, first of all, he is a random guy in the National Assembly. And guess what? He was selected assembly president with no popular support. Again, the National Assembly has like 70% of the country doesn't like it and doesn't support it. He doesn't have the right to declare himself president. All of these people who want to preempt um, denouncing regime change, saying Maduro's an authoritarian, he's bad, he's corrupt, but you're not just talking about Maduro. Um, you're talking about a mass poor people's movement that is in power. Like, how, how disgusting to just say Maduro is a dictator. No, this is millions of people, over 6 million people um, in a country of 30 million. We're talking about 20 million of eligible voting age. Six million of those people chose to support the Bolivarian movement. This is a people's movement more politically engaged and enthusiastic than I've ever seen anything across America. Um, and they, they chose Maduro for the role. They're the ones in power. They're highly politically active and they're the ones fighting to build an equal society. I know it's confusing and I know the corporate media is painting this one-sided narrative, but like look deeper because we were there and we yeah. saw, you know, outside of Caracas, especially there's like just tens of thousands of people engaged in this process. Mm -hmm. And well, it's, it's just, yeah, you're just saying that. And I saw people all over the place saying, oh, the poor people who are given food for voting. And I'm like, this is a very elitist kind of despicable talking point that poor people have no agency and they're just robots and they go and vote for Maduro because they yeah. get a sandwich afterward. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it, it's the thing that I see that's the most damaging about what's happening right now is that there are no, there aren't even any like counter narrative, um, things that have propped up even on alternative media that high. So for example, like with Syria, you have all these outlets sort of, you know, echoing things that are a mixture of like the Kremlin line on Syria and other sort of anti-imperialist views on Syria, like Zero Hedge and a lot of those other outlets that always have a counter narrative to Syria. But when it comes to Venezuela, I saw Zero Hedge maybe put out like one article about it. But like in general, like the content on Zero Hedge is like very kind of generally anti-left, anti-socialist. So that's the problem. You'll not see any of those. Right. You know, where did all these right anti-interventionists go? Well, they actually hate the left and socialist more than they hate regime change. And, exactly. and and if you can't understand that, and if you don't believe that, you really need to wake the fuck up to think that right people on the right hold up anti-war and anti-imperialism as their number one thing. In actuality, they really hate the left and socialism and even things that are mildly socialist. They think it's the end of the world. So it kind of, it's just a sad state. That's why it's so important to speak out against right now. And I'm glad to see people like even the Ron Paul Institute speaking out against it. Right. Is good. It shows that they're principled in that regard. And most people, unfortunately, who hold up this mantle of being anti-war, anti-imperialism, they're actually not principled. That's what, that, and that's sort of what I was trying to emphasize in the last episode, how fall, how low the bar has fallen. Um, well, history will speak pretty loudly for these people, I think, very soon. Um, we already know that the coup is not going to go easily because Vladimir Padrino, the head of the national or the defense minister, basically s said, no, we don't accept this guy yeah. as the president. So when you don't have the military on your side, you're kind of in for a rough ride. But what could turn really ugly is, you know, it could turn into a civil war if this guy just holds himself up in a mansion and starts trying to pretend like he's the president. I mean, I don't know how far Trump's willing to go.
so bizarre. I mean, yeah, no, it'll, it'll be very interesting. And I think on the last episode, you, you said that Trump is capable of doing something like an Operation Just Cause. I mean, yeah, you know, in Panama. Right. I think he's very capable of that. And I also think one of the things worth pointing out is this doesn't feel like a John Bolton uh, sort of neocon PNAC thing. This kind of fits perfectly within the worldview of Trump. Venezuela has the world's largest oil reserves. And this mm-hmm. may be redundant. He said he would have been for Iraq if we could have just gotten the oil. So this kind of fits perfectly in line with his point of view. It's an it's a socialist government. They have the world's biggest oil supplies. His supporters won't see it as a neocon regime change thing because their standards for what being anti-regime changes are very low and distorted because they think Tucker Carlson is anti-regime change. So it kind of fits perfectly within what he's, you know, his personality. This is not excuse some me, John excuse me. Bolton thing. Have you seen how fast they put up rigs? Yeah. <laughs> it's fucking disgusting. Um, yeah, no, it's perfectly plays into that, Robbie, and all of his supporters and even a lot of people who are so-called progressives, they are so easily duped that their response is, well, what are you saying? Maduro isn't corrupt. Maduro isn't a dictator. Well, what should we do then? It's like, wait, what? Um, I don't understand how these things keep happening and how we keep repeating the same thing over and over again. Because if you think that the last hundred years of CIA interventions in Latin America has ever resulted in something good, then your head is so far up your ass. I don't know how to help you get it out. Yeah. So. No, it's, it's interesting. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and, and it'll be interesting to watch people right now, like Jack Posobiec and Tucker Carlson, who I've always been suspicious about as being Trump proxies who help run interference for Trump directly, meaning that they're on the phone with this motherfucker. I mean, like, we already know Tucker Carlson speaks to Trump on the phone regularly. So does Ann Coulter. So you have to wonder, how does that stuff filter out? Trump is very is a very good persuader. That's mm-hmm. one of the things that that dipshit hack, you know, who created Dilbert, um, mentioned that's actually true. <laughs> who lives in Pleasanton. Yeah, who lives in Pleasanton, California. I wish um, I... That we fucked with his little book at Stacy's restaurant. Oh yeah, I we used I to just like slam that b- dumbass in his uh, in his guest book at the restaurant he owned way before we knew he was like a conservative hack. So yeah, I'm because he painted himself. <laughs> it was a very creepy mural on his stupid ass restaurant, Pleasanton Ca, with um, himself looking like a lizard person, like, and yeah. him and his wife like all creepily just staring at the painter who painted yeah. it. But then everyone else is like milling around in the background. It's like, damn, dude. He has that weird, like, swinger, fit dad, like, male growth hormone look to him. That's why he probably likes Cernovich so much. He probably is, like, super into that growth hormone shit. Oh, I'm sure that he's read pickup artistry. He Mm -hmm. probably, I don't know anything about his personal life, but he seemed like the kind of guy who got divorced and is just, like, picking up women in Pleasanton Mm -hmm. with, like, a low-cut shirt. Yep. Like a midlife crisis. I mean, not midlife, like end of life, you know, third, last third of his life <laughs> crisis kind of bullshit. But anyways, about, I mean, let's, let's move on from okay, 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 him yeah. and, and all these idiots. But one thing that I wanted to just talk about really, really briefly is the teacher's strike in Los Angeles that I had the honor of attending one of the mass rallies for in downtown. And it was just so inspiring. The spirits were so high. It was, it was really, really an amazing moment. And you know, we've been talking often about Fahrenheit 11.9, and one of the messages that I like that Michael Moore put forward is the mobilization of the masses is the only thing that brings us hope in this country, and it's the only thing that can bring progressive change. And if we're looking at something like teachers, um, look at the West Virginia teachers strike that happened. I mean, teachers are on food stamps. They have to have second jobs at Walmart. 
because they're paid so little. So they had to go on strike and their union leaders sold them out. So they just kept going on strike. They kept going on strike and, and they kept putting themselves out in the streets until they got what they wanted. And I think that that's a really beautiful thing. And labor has just been so crushed in this country. It's amazing to see these things happening again. And so teachers went on strike here. I think the next city, I think Oakland may have a strike soon, if not already going on. Um, but it was happening for a couple weeks, and the union came to an agreement here where they're hiring more teachers to reduce class size, um, they're relieving overcrowding in schools, they're hiring more nurses, more counselors, more librarians, and it also includes a 6% pay raise. And this is way more than they originally even sought out to do. It's just because the momentum got so high and people were supporting them so much that they just thought, let's just go for it and try to actually address overcrowding while we're at it. Because think about this. I mean, I was talking to a teacher the other day and she was saying, you know, in two years, there's been 10 kids added to her class. Think about that. She doesn't get paid any more money. She doesn't get paid more money for how many more kids are added. She gets the same salary and that's more, 10 more children that you have to teach on top of that grade it's just like, it's incomprehensible that we do this to teachers. They should be paid the most, like out of any profession, like next to doctors. But for some reason, we pay them nothing. And we wonder why um, the country ends up the way it does. So I was really thrilled to be a part of it. And I'm really happy that they got what they wanted for now. And I just hope that we keep seeing more movements like it. We saw, uh, it's, it, we were talking about Fahrenheit 11.9 on the last episode. And that's one of the things that Michael Moore definitely shoehorned into the movie that he seemed like he had something else in mind, maybe. Maybe yeah. even a short film about that would have been more interesting. But he was showing you know, a lot of the energy with the previous teacher strikes and how little press coverage it got and how much that movement grew. It was pretty fascinating to see you know, that he would think a teacher strike would be like on the news every day if it was that right. big, but it was completely sort of erased from the dialogue. And this is something where when liberal celebrities, Hollywood kind of types come out and support, I'm, I don't cringe at, you know, mm -hmm. there's other things mm -hmm. that they, when they come out and support, I'm kind of like, oh man, like, why did you, Mark Ruffalo, why did you post this, uh, you know, anti-bullying video by this mom who's in some ways kind of abusing her own child by posting a video of him crying to the internet? Like, why would you post that? <laughs> and it makes me cringe. Or like when Pharrell was at the oh, teacher strike and I was like, oh no, Pharrell, didn't you just fundraise for the IDF? Yeah. Too bad, dude. I mean, uh, there's a lot quick, of times yeah. when, li when liberal celebrities get on board of just the most cringeworthy political causes, even the things where they're like, vote, you know, go out and vote. It's like, why don't you just say vote Democrat? You're not telling people to go vote Republican, obviously. Yeah, 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 you yeah. Know? It just, I just get sick of it. But then on the other hand, there are some great celebrities who are actually like really far left. I mean, like you have like Viggo Mortensen and, you know, even John Cusack in some regard, um, you know, have sort of, you know, widened the debate or even Susan Sarandon. So there's people out there who are famous who aren't just milquetoast Democrats. Yeah, speaking of speaking of Susan Sarandon, Tim Robbins just uh, quoted me yesterday and he was like, there's another, another side of the story. He's like, I'm in Buenos Aires right now. He's like on the news here. They're showing dueling protests that are equal in size. He was like, why isn't this being shown anywhere else? He's like, I don't claim to know much about Maduro. He's like, but I'm pretty sure that we wouldn't just allow some random guy to appoint himself to be president. He's like, is this the way that we're going to like just accept that this is happening? It's so great, Abby, that, I mean, this is what I think what you're doing is so important because 
you did you did all this sort of during a period when Venezuela wasn't like the number one issue. Right. You know, so now that it has become it for this past, you know, four days or whatever in the news cycle, your content's there. You know, I don't know how long it all is in total, like maybe a couple hours. I mean, there's so much there to dig through and see right. multiple angles of the story that it's just so important that you've already you've already done that. So you don't it's not even like, you know, anybody who's trying to report on it now, I feel like, well, they'll be sort of colored by the debate about it now. And, you know, seeing your stuff, especially outside of that, that debate that's going back and forth now. I mean, it just it's I think it's just really, really important. Everybody. Oh, needs yeah, to it's, watch it's- it. It's totally awesome because we just released a clip of Vladimir Padrino responding to the attacks from Trump. From when I was there, I asked him directly. I was like, what is your response to Trump saying a military invasion is not off the table? And so we just released that. It's like it just fits perfectly right now. I mean, this is this is going on right now. And the content is so important to put out there. And thank you for for saying that, Robbie. I appreciate that. Um, Quick shout out to the motherfuckerawards.com a fun event that I was a part of uh, hosted by Chris Ryan and also Kyle Thierman. He's like this pro surfer guy. They put on the event. It's a really cool like fake awards gala that is quote unquote celebrating the worst corporations that have fucked over Mother Earth the most. Um, So I was lucky enough to present the fire category. It was like different categories, fire, water, spirit, air. I honored Lockheed Martin, Chevron, and PG&E, and PG&E won. Of course, uh, PG&E is the electric company responsible for 19 of the 21 major fires in California in just the last year, as well as the uh, campfire fire. So they are now trying to pass on the costs to us, just like we thought they would, Robbie. They are now asking to get bailed out. <laughs> so, Well, let me, let me um, just really quickly tell, like, yeah. give some personal anecdotal experiences yeah. about PG&E. Um, I live in a wooded area. Um, there are power lines, old power lines and power poles, the old wooden kinds that are made out of tree trunks, super old ones, mind you, super, super old ones um, that are just weaved in and out of tons of tall trees, brush, dry brush all throughout where I live. And this is the norm out here. So in reality, right. a fire if one of those power poles starts sparking, which has happened twice that I have seen with my own eyes since I have lived here in 10 years, if one of those happens to happen near a dry tree, it's over for this area that I live in. And, and I think about that all the time. I mean, PG&E, one of the times it happened when I first moved out here, a power line actually broke during a rainstorm and was just like dancing around, shooting out blue fucking like movie style special effect lightning in the streets. Wow. Sounds safe. Yeah. Um, A few years later, they were working on a broken power line um, in the neighborhood. They didn't issue a warning to anybody and a giant brownout occurred for about three or four hours. A brownout is actually can damage elect- electrical components. Uh, two pieces of my gear in my music studio broke from a brownout that they caused from repairing a power line. Those are just like two minor, you know, that's like a minor thing. They take no responsibility for it, you know? Like, what are you going to do? You have to pretty much sue them to like get them to pay for things that they broke from their fucking repair activity. But yeah, I mean, it's a disaster waiting to happen. And also where I live has this ridiculous program where you have to cut 
the trees around your own power lines. You're responsible for it. Uh, are you serious? Yeah, I'm serious. And not only that, they. I remember when I first moved out here, they sent around a thing to people who lived in houses saying, we could bury your power line for like $7,000 for you. And what I mean by that is not just the power lines like in general near your house. I'm talking about the power that goes to your house is not underground. It's actually coming from the power line down to your house. Like that's how old fashioned all this shit is up here. And they are asking you to pay like up to $7,000 to get them to bury it, even though it's extremely unsafe. What the hell? In that case, that they're asking people to like trim their own trees and rake the it's rake the forests, like like Trump said. I'm surprised that they're even like haven't just completely absolved themselves entirely and just well, been like, what? I this is the responsibility of the people. It's like they probably figured out a way. Like if we let if we reach the public and let them know they can pay money to do all this mm-hmm. stuff, and they should because it's a public safety hazard. Like we're sort of not liable. I think that's wow. technically why. Like they must have. You know, they've probably talked yeah, to tons, yeah, yeah. tons of lawyers about what Yeah, because they, they're causing fires like every month Yeah, during dry season, so they know. And even um, CNN was actually recently talking. I saw Anderson Cooper doing something about how there's a giant class action lawsuit now against PG&E, and they were kind of talking about it positively. I mean, good. you have to remember that the San Bruno disaster was, was an international like story. Mm-hmm. It was one of the craziest gas explosions in, in um, the United States in its history. I mean, you remember when yeah. that happened, right? That's when Greg yeah. Palast yeah, yeah, was yeah, doing yeah. that investigative reporting mm-hmm. about how the pig, the little robot they call the pig that was supposed to go into the pipelines and detect holes and leaks, was actually the mechanism that where it made an alarm or an indication when there was a leak was deliberately turned off by PG&E. So they didn't have to actually fix things. They just sent in the monitoring equipment and they didn't, they didn't actually uh, write down or look for the real leaks and damage in the pipes, gas pipes. Yeah, we need to nationalize PG&E. This is batshit crazy that they're going to try to push the costs on us and then just have the government bail them out and then just keep doing this. They've yeah. already killed so many people. I mean, because California is a tinderbox. It is. There's going to be less rain when global warming, climate change gets worse. It's, go- it's going to be a multi-pronged societal collapse in some ways. And one of those ways is just the dryness in California. Mm -hmm. Like people are talking about drought, you know, for crops and stuff. The dryness in California causing all these wildfires is much more of an pressing issue actually right now. And it's happening already before our eyes. Like it's not something, it's not some climate change, 2025, 2030 prediction. It's happening right now. It's a serious thing. Couldn't agree more. Um, January 15th, a press TV journalist, American-born Marzia Hashemi, she was detained by the TSA in St. Louis, um, sent to D.C., detained for like 11 days, unlawfully held, and they were saying that they wanted to prep her testimony. And I don't know the details more than that, Robbie, but she was just released, I think, yesterday. Still no word of why they held her for so long. Yeah. And what's going to happen to her. You know, we're already seeing all these Trump maneuvers against Iran, the sanctions, the rhetoric, um, the, the uh, what's his name, Brian Hook, Iran team, you know, a guy who goes back and forth between the Foundation for Defense of Democracies and Iran regime change, neocon think tank, and the Trump administration. Um, 
So it's not surprising, and I think that it's definitely part of something larger that's happening here. On one side, we see the neoliberal establishment, the Russiagate-obsessed people, the social media networks banning all these Sputnik-affiliated Facebook pages and, and personal pages by Sputnik employees. So now they're mm-hmm. going, actually going after the employees of Russian media. But then on the other side, we see this weird thing happen where a press TV journalist gets inexplicably detained and then released. So on, you know, from the Trump administration's uh, side of the power spectrum. So it's a, it's a very bad sign for, for the free press in this country in general and, and free expression. Yeah, it would be great to reach out to her and just see, maybe we can get an interview with her or something because, God, how awful. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if I was, if I landed in Tehran and they kept me for 11 days? Oh, I mean, I mean it would be, be horrifying, especially for a, a Muslim woman. I mean, mm-hmm. it, you know, apparently they made her, they only gave her bologna and crackers in jail. Holy... Wow. I mean, so basically we're trying to, you know, humiliate and starve her. Oh, my God. And I think only in certain jurisdictions are, is it actually has been judged by federal courts that you can still wear your hijab in detention. Oh, sad. So in this, this really... case, they obviously they didn't let her wear it. It was completely punitive. Obviously, they hate Iran and press TVs, the Iran station. Yeah. So. Yeah. I guess, I mean, the the, the only other thing that's really in the news that's taking over all the headlines right now is the the wall, the border crisis and the government shutdown, you know, kind of in the background, uh, while that was all happening, a little story snuck through the cracks, uh, saying that actually all those sound weapon claims that were damaging American diplomats hearing in Cuba and, and, and even in China, I guess, are now blamed on crickets that were indigenous to the region. So this is like a story that's been happening for years, actually. Yeah, for it keeps like almost coming two in and out of the now. news. They always speculated that it was some sort of sophisticated sound weapon that was being perpetrated by the Cuban government, yeah. by the Cuban dictatorship on U.S. diplomats just trying to do their jobs. Yeah. Um, and embarrassingly, it was crickets. Yeah. So what is How the per- did they not understand that? I don't know. And, and it's, well... See, as someone who has like a sound engineering background, even that doesn't really even make sense to me. Like why, like what is really happening here? Are people actually going (laughs) deaf? Is there medical records showing that they are deaf and that it's not some kind of like psychological thing that's happening to them? So there's, you know, a lot of people are even saying, scientists were even saying that this seems to be some kind of form of mental illness or like madness. Um... So it's it's a, it's a really weird story, but I keep but caused going, by the crickets. The madness was caused by I the don't sound, know. That's what doesn't make it... any sense to me. Mm-hmm. But what they the reason they think that it's crickets are to blame is because the same type of cricket noise was recorded in the background of every like recording they did to test out what these sounds were potentially. So that's where they're getting that from. But I guess the other part of it is. It seems like during like the Cold War and stuff, if Russia had like these secret kind of weapons, like I don't know if we would make this big of a deal about it in the press. So it makes me wonder if this is almost just like a story getting so much publicity to to make people paranoid. It almost or to deflect from some weapons that we have. The electronic mm-hmm. interference conspiracy theorist thing, where it's like you get really down the rabbit hole in conspiracy theories, and a lot of people on the other side end up at. I'm being targeted. The government's electronically targeting me. 
They're sending like way, you know, electronic waves into my house. It's kind of reminds me of that. It's, yeah, it's exactly. odd. Exactly. But it goes along with all this other paranoia about like Russia being behind every, you know, online campaign to like go against the U.S. establishment. So I don't know. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Um, I don't really understand the story at all. No, I was just I mean, really confused. I, how, I, you know, yeah. it, it deserves a whole podcast, but it's also kind of like a non-story because it seems like some kind of psyop on behalf of whoever is like putting out the story. That's what it feels like to me. But you want to talk about the government shut down the wall right now? Yeah. So the biggest story going on is this government shutdown. Um, this is an unprecedented shutdown. Yes, other presidents have shut down the government. Obama shut down the government because he was trying to pass health care. So the consequences of this are just absolutely catastrophic. You have 800,000 unpaid workers either on leave or forced to work still that are not being paid. It's, it's totally shocking. Ken Klipperstein has been like collecting stories of just how people are personally affected by this because it seems like kind of an abstract thing. You're not really affected unless you like, you know, know someone who's a government worker, right? Um, well, it, it is really, really shocking because we're talking about people not being able to get medicine, um, getting food stamps approved. You don't understand how many things are tied to the government, being able to initiate that process, getting food stamps moving into state and federal housing units. People are being turned away from government-funded social services, shelters, abuse centers, crazy stuff. Um, and then you look at the national parks. I mean, people are shitting all over the national parks and trashing them, doing donuts and wheelies over ancient rocks and Joshua trees. <laughs> the thing is, when parks are open, you have people that are around you that are uh -huh. like, you know, it's not just park rangers it's like humans that are yeah. also there with their families and stuff that are monitoring the behavior of other human beings but now it's just like a free-for-all and you know how disgusting americans are yeah well i God mean knows what it just also reminds me of how hypocritical and silly the right-wing media spin machine is you know we we tend to think that only cnn and msnbc right now are like the craziest because all they do is talk about putin and trump constantly the idea of people starving is terrible it's like a universal thing that most people can you know understand um or that people aren't getting paid i mean that's so fundamental but here's the low-hanging fruit the right-wing spin machine went for to try to like hit the old grandma and grandpas who watch fox news like in the gut they were like oh my god obama shut down the government and that means he shut down the war memorials and they like staged like <laughs> like World War II vets like coming. They had like astroturf like World War II vet people coming to D.C. to try to go see the memorial and like confront the police on video, who were like not letting them into the memorials. You wow. remember that? Yeah. And like Fox News yep. was like twenty four seven, like just talking about how oh my god these World War II vets are being so disrespected. Obama doesn't give a shit about them. He's like disrespecting our vets. It was like such an amazing fucking like gateway pundit style thing. Um, yeah, I don't know it's, why. It's I just funny that they that. made, just they just made it. it all about the memorials. Exactly. Yeah, that's the only exactly. thing. Yeah. Right. It was totally insane. <laughs> um, and, and what's just so crazy is what he's hijacking the government to try to push the wall, a wall that already exists, a wall that if you look at this video called Good Luck with the Wall, it's a video of someone that composited 
satellite imagery and and stitched together like thousands and thousands of images to you can see like a composite video of the entirety of the border as it exists now and you can understand why there isn't a wall on the entirety of the border because of the mountainous terrain the treacherous mountainous terrain and also like waterways that are you know snaking through it's just it's virtually impossible to build this wall where they want to build the wall the wall that's already there is built in the places that they that people think that there isn't a wall. You know what I'm saying? Of it's course. like there's a reason why, and and they do it on purpose. We've talked about this before. They it's a funnel effect. Yeah, funneling migrants to so then they they have to cross those mountain ranges, and then they that's where these people go and leave water for them, and then they're charged with felonies, which mm-hmm. is what I'm going to get into. In the background, it's like this is all over this hysterical talking point to feed into racists. And like a manufactured crisis that doesn't exist at the border. In fact, immigration is drastically down. Jimmy Dore is the one who told me this fact, which I was stunned by. The vast majority of people who are here, quote unquote, undocumented, are Europeans and Canadians who overstay their visas. Well, people who overstay their visas are the main thing. And I even think in the case of... You know, even if you take all the 9-11 official story narratives at face value, I don't even think some of those hijackers actually overstayed their visas at all. Like they were actually here on regular visas, like in the normal within the normal window. I think some of them did. But it's like even if you so like what it's just so weird that the idea of immigration and terrorism even got linked together. It's just such a base level thing. And if you remember that kind of goes back to the Syrian refugee crisis, like um, 2015 era, like when all the Republican candidates were trying to like sort of massage what their message was going to be for the election. And that was one that came out at the other end, which is somehow the idea of ISIS and illegal immigration are interlinked. Yep. And that, and that, then it goes back to the caravan. ISIS is on exactly. the caravan. Which is just like, even if you're like a racist, anti-Mexican conservative, like you have to know that Trump is, I mean, can't, are you that dumb where you don't realize that's a lie? I mean, it's just so blatant. It's even more right. stupid than the kind of propaganda the Bush administration would, was trying to push. It's dumber. And, you know, and, I've, and I used to listen to a lot of talk, right-wing talk radio to study what, these talking points, and it's even dumber than things they say. So it just like, you know, I feel like Trump is actually going for an even like, cheaper seats than someone like Laura Ingram's radio show is, which is just sad. I mean, the notion of building this wall is beyond ridiculous. It's a talking point that he continues to feed into his base. Um, If he wanted to really move forward with this, he would have done it when he had complete control over both houses. Yeah. He didn't. He admits in interviews that he just yells, build the wall at rallies when he feels like um, there's a lull mm-hmm. in energy. Um, it's just stunning. And, and then you have Democrats saying, of course, we'll agree to more border security. Yeah. Like, let's agree to that. We'll give you whatever you want when it, with border security. Yeah. Like, why? So if he loses the debate eventually and he caves, then at least he'll get support for like all that shit. So... Yeah, I mean, it's it's hilarious that it all comes down to this. And I think that it's that he knows if he doesn't fulfill the promise of the most cartoonish thing that people got excited about about his campaign, then somehow that makes his legacy ruined. Like, he's already decided that he's going to be willing to, like, completely put everything on the line for this thing, this tokenistic, fake, cartoonish thing that he promised his base. 
I mean, it just seems very egoistic. Because oh, of course. It, it, it's a fucking weird, actually. And he's promoting hoax stories right now about prayer shawls being found in the desert based on the testimony of one, like, rogue border patrol guy. This is something that's been promoted for years with zero evidence. Yeah. Breitbart, back in 2014, did the same thing. They, pr- they posted pictures of an Adidas shirt, <laughs> uh-huh. called it a prayer rug. It's just a long-running hoax that dumbasses keep falling for, including the president yeah. of the United States. Well, it completes the and circle. Exactly. I mean, look exactly. at the same thing Breitbart was putting out. Frank Gaffney, a neocon PNAC signatory who was the inspiration for Trump's Muslim ban because he commissioned this doctored poll saying that most people would actually agree that um, Muslims should not be allowed in the country or something. He used to write for Breitbart. I think he actually still does. He, this is the kind of shit that he wanted people to believe. He, wants pe- he wanted people to believe the Muslim Brotherhood, that there was an Islamic jihadist infiltration in the White House itself. He was a birther with Obama. But then he tried to you know, inject all this stuff about Huma Abedin bringing in the Muslim Brotherhood, etc. And that's what's taking over America. There's going to be Sharia takeover. And then from the other side, you have this idea that illegal immigrants are sneaking in or they're actually secret Muslim ISIS members who were using prayer shawls in the desert as they were crossing the border. So stupid. But this is what a lot of conservatives believe. You look at comment sections, they think Muslims are everywhere. And ISIS is hiding everywhere trying to infiltrate the country. And again, the normalization of these horrible things that Trump does, like the fact that just the shutdown alone, yeah, the longest in its history, all of these, you know, almost a million people furloughed, all of these things, and, and somehow we've normalized it because I guess so much is happening at once, we can't process it individually or like on a case-by-case basis. Yeah. And uh, amidst all of this, no more deaths, a really amazing volunteer group who goes out and tries to leave water and food for migrants who are passing in the desert, as we know. Yeah. Thousands of people die in the desert every year with this funnel effect that, you know, the funnel effect that Clinton put into effect from 1995. I mean, this is the death, death is a deterrent in the desert. So no more deaths is an organization that's been around for a long time and they do amazing work. I mean, they they save lives and you see border patrol, they put out hidden cameras. You see border patrol going, kicking over the bottles, dumping them out, sadistically laughing. Um, And, you know, it's kind of the natural conclusion that they would try to prosecute these people because Border Patrol is so crazy and sadistic, and they, they actually do know that removing the water source for these migrants is a death sentence. That's what they want. They think that, like, stories of people dying in the desert is just going to go back to Mexico and deter these people from crossing. That's never going to happen. These people are fleeing death. <laughs> they will risk death to come here. We put together a whole documentary about this. It's called The Empire's War on the Border. Mike and I went down to the Arizona border and we went out with no more deaths. We interviewed them. We went out on one of their treks and we left water and it was beautiful um, and it was amazing. And so, you know, it's just, it's a crazy commentary on society when you, when like, let's say the fires were going on and we were saying, leave out water for the animals who are escaping the forests because they're on fire. And then you have actual human beings crossing the desert (laughs) And you have people who are leaving water out for them, and now they're charged with felonies. So four volunteers from No More Deaths have not only been charged, but found guilty 
of misdemeanors. I'm sorry, not felonies. So four volunteers were found guilty of misdemeanors for leaving water in the desert. Um, this is the first conviction brought against this humanitarian group in 10 years. I think something happened 10 years ago, but this is, um, this is a pretty crazy escalation. And it really does go all the way back to the Trump administration because the people that he's been appointing to oversee border security are way more draconian and they want to crack down on these people. They hate these people. You see like these inner documents. I think the Intercept got a hold of some of these documents and they're just gleeful. Like they actually want to put these people in prison. <laughs> the people who are leaving water for migrants. So um, crazy. And so these no more death volunteers, it's just really sad. I mean, I don't think, I don't think any of us really thought that they would get charged because these people could go to jail for 10 years each. Um, from their website, I'm just going to quote their website right now. The aid workers are being prosecuted for their efforts to place life-saving food and water on the Cabeza Prieta National Wildlife Refuge, a vast and remote area south of Ajo, Arizona, where 91 border crossers are known to have died since 2014. Countless more have gone missing. The summer of 2017 was one of the deadliest on record in Arizona, resulting in a total of 32 known migrant deaths on the refuge. Um, this trial, you know, is, is, is happening or happened during this crazy government shutdown. And the guy who's representing no more deaths says, quote, his name's Max Granger. He says, the president is holding the country hostage over his demand for a border wall and claiming the humanitarian aid crisis as justification for his actions. We believe a humanitarian crisis warrants a humanitarian response. A border wall will do nothing to alleviate the crisis of death and disappearance along the U.S.-Mexico border. The protection of the right to give and to receive humanitarian aid is essential as long as the government maintains border policies that funnel migration into the most remote parts of the desert. And, um, uh, you know, a minimum of 3,000 people have died since making their way north since 2000. And um, we heard many horror stories from these volunteers. We, we also took a hidden camera into a mass immigration trial there in Arizona, showed you how awful this immigration policy has been. Mm -hmm. Well, well beyond Trump, we're talking about Obama, we're talking about Clinton. This is the death by deterrent strategy that I was talking about. So um, it's, it's not good enough to go back to how it was. But right now, the escalation under Trump is pretty fucking fascistic and disturbing. And um, the fact that we're all just playing along with this, pretending like there's no wall already and the Democrats are just playing along with this is, is pretty puzzling. Like... Why don't they just say the truth because that there's a wall already and that the, where there's not a wall, the migrants die? I think it's virtue signaling. They want they know that it's unpopular to the public now to be like, first of all, they're pretending like there isn't a wall already. Right. Because they don't want people to know that they already like supported that. Right. <laughs> and then Trump, the only smart thing Trump has done to to show that they're dumb is to show video clips of all of them saying how much they want to like crack down on illegal immigration. But the problem is Trump already like fucked up and just like used like the low hanging fruit playing to the cheapest seats possible, like fear mongering stuff. So Trump is trying to like, it is very odd. I mean, both, I'm not tr trying to draw an equivalency. I mean, I think the Democrats are mostly, you know, they're terrible, but they're, there's like false shit on both sides here. Posturing. Of, um, in a very strange way. Because, yeah, of course the Democrats were, are actually very oddly supportive of a lot of this illegal immigration crackdown. Look at what Obama right. did when he was in office. 
right. that the media didn't seem to care about. So a lot of this is phony, but it, that doesn't mean that what Trump is doing is not insane and crazy. He said he was going to shoot people, or he like was, was implying that he's giving the army permission to shoot people like who came from the caravan if they throw a rock over the border. Good so, point. Yeah. We, we see, I, I already forgot about that. Yeah. Isn't I mean, that so that's something that's unique about Trump. Obama mm-hmm. didn't say that. Obama actually, well, he was in power when they were using tear gas on the border. That's true. But Obama didn't say to shoot people with live ammunition. So, I mean, yeah, there's differences here. It's not, it's not just Trump is just doing things just as bad as Obama. He's ratcheted it up. He's made it more openly fascistic. He's demonized immigrants and illegal immigrants much more than Obama did on the rhetorical side of things. So Yeah, it's like, what do you think that rhetoric does? It, it goes down the chain of, of command. Course, it How do you think down. that that affects the border security who are treating the migrants? Yeah, absolutely. My God. Well, let's get into this neocon update. Yeah, we, I mean, we haven't really done a, a neocon update in a while. I don't think we've really done one ever, but I mean, there's, mm-hmm. we used to talk about them constantly. I was fairly obsessed with neoconservatives. I made a three-part documentary film called The Very Heavy Agenda about it. You can still get it online, streaming, rent it, download it, or buy it on DVD. A little plug there for it. But yeah, I mean, there's just been a lot of stuff that's been happening. And I noticed the term neocon has come back into the popular sphere of discussion. A lot more people are using the term neocon now from the right and the left. Um, A lot of the people on the right are using it disingenuously. I actually saw somebody from Newsmax, I think I discussed this on the last episode, bashing the neocons on Twitter, which to me is just insanely hypocritical because Newsmax is a neoconservative propaganda-pushing outlet that used to bring on Bill Kristol, Kerchick, Edelman constantly. You see the word being used a lot right now, but I guess let's start with someone who seems like she is the new the new neocon surrogate replacement for a new neocon Jamie Kerchick, who was like really hot back in like 2014, 2013. This um, woman named Barry Weiss, who is a New York Times writer. She went on Joe Rogan recently to basically indirectly bash you and uh, and accuse you of being an anti-Semite in a roundabout way. And let's preempt this by saying she's also the author of the acclaimed intellectual dark web piece in New York Times where you saw Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson like hiding behind like dark palm fronds yeah. in like the forest because her whole thesis was that these people are so marginalized in the mainstream that they have to go on programs like Joe Rogan to really get their views out because yeah. mainstream has shunned them because they're too controversial. No. And I ben think Shapiro the mainstream has shunned ideas too, like race science. Yeah. Ideas. I don't know if Ben Shapiro was put in there. I would not be surprised though. Jesus Christ. But these people, that that's like a side the point that these people are not shunned from the mainstream. They have total platforms everywhere. HBO, Bill Maher, um, Fox News. I see them everywhere. So I don't understand that premise of like these people are so, are so marginalized that they have to go on Joe Rogan to get it out there. And that's why they're part of this intellectual dark web. But the funny thing about that article is that she popped me in there because obviously she's so upset at what I said about, about Palestine on Joe Rogan's show, because it was really the biggest platform I've ever given to that topic. And I really went really hard for about 30 minutes straight, two times, 
And she was so upset about that, she had to throw me in there and say, yeah, but Joe also has on people like this, Abby Martin, who is crazy and defends Bashar al-Assad and um, is just nuts and she's a conspiracy theorist. So she like, what, what was really fascinating about that is um, ever since I went on Joe Rogan, the pro-Israel lobby and organizations have been trying desperately to get on someone to like, quote unquote, counter me, you know? And on they were lobbying show. very hard for the last year, yeah. They were lobbying him, lobbying him. And so that's why I, I, that's what I think kind of happened that Barry Weiss got it in her head. Like I need to go on now. And so that's what she did. She wanted to go on and quote unquote, correct the record about Israel. And she fucking failed miserably. Yeah. It was embarrassing. She did a total roundabout dodge and made it seem like she's actually really critical of Israel, but she thinks the people who are, genuinely critical because she's obviously not she's lying when she says that the people who are genuinely critical and focused on israel being an apartheid state are suspiciously focused on it meaning they're actually anti-semitic so first she opens it by saying that that notion that you know that accusation that people who criticize israel are accused of being anti-semitic that's that's bs but I think there's a real problem with the suspicious, like, over-focus on it. It's like, so literally she is saying what she just said was BS. She's so disingenuous and hypocritical and makes me think that she is trained by neoconservative uh, think tanks. Like, it doesn't just sound that. like... I didn't get that from her. She was, so, she was a really bad version of Kerchik. If this is, well, like, yeah, their way to try to that. rebrand neoconservatism, they're, like, doing a piss-poor job. They are. She was inarticulate, kind of dumb, frankly. I mean, I, I hate to say that, but it it really was true. I was really kind of ashamed for her because that's the one thing. Love him or hate him, Joe Rogan really does kind of allow people to fall on their own sword. Yeah. Um, in a lot of ways, like Candace Owens really revealed herself to be a complete moron. And, and this was another instance where someone who's a New York Times editorialist she can't articulate herself or back up anything she says. It's kind of this mantra in DC where other neoliberal, you know, like um, imperialists like say something so then it's true. Like that's what I got from her is like, oh, your friends and colleagues at the New York Times say this, therefore this is this. And um, you saw that time and again, like for example, Joe brought up my Palestine report and he was like, yeah, I've seen some really crazy stuff. Abby went there and showed me some insane stuff. And then she said, she was like other country, like she's like, what about the genocide in China? Like, what about the genocide in China? Oh, the Uyghurs. Yeah. This and it was so- like, wait, but what, hold on though, Barry, because there's a genocide going on in Palestine and there's a concentration camp there. So you want to talk about concentration camps in China. We're not talking about that though. What? And We're talking so, about this. And it's not even, it's first of all, she calls it, she says genocide, which is. It's completely absurd. Completely made up. But the idea that these are concentration camps is also oh, yeah. a highly right. distorted, strangely left baiting neocon talking point. Mm-hmm. Let's just get that out of the way. Mm-hmm. Just like the Tucker Carlson Antifa pro- protest was some kind of act of terrorism was some kind of right-wing talking point op. This is a fucking op being circulated throughout the left. And, and the sheer same, whataboutism. Yeah, whataboutism. And the, and the same suspicious characters who have a sheep-dippy spook quality to them are the ones pushing this the hardest. The same quote-unquote leftists uh, who talk about how everybody's an a sodist and a tanky 
are the ones pushing this this thing. Yeah, and and her whole argument was other countries do bad things too, and uh, and the occupation essentially can't end because Palestinians would kill everyone. That's what she was like. I'd love to end the occupation, but we can't. Don't you see? Hamas is a death cult. They lynch people. What's funny is she's acting like. You know, she claims that she was in the West Bank and she um, she covers it fairly. I was in the West Bank for a month. I didn't hear anything about Hamas. She, first of all, she claims that like people are lynching people in the West Bank. That's insane. I, I, um, I remember hearing that and thinking she's just pulling this out of her ass. I've never straight heard up pulling out of her this. ass. And it's like I would have happily reported on if I heard anything like that going on. Like that would have been part of the story. The thing is that doesn't exist. Um, so it, it was totally pulling it out of her ass and again, just deflecting everything about Israel's war crimes and daily atrocities to Hamas is bad and yeah. China has this and people must be anti-Semitic if they harp on Israel in a disproportionate uh-huh. fashion. And it's like, hold on, um, I'm pretty sure that Israel is unique. First of all, it's a country wholly subsidized by our government and military. Yeah. So let's get that out of the way. It's basically just a proxy of the U.S. government. It's basically our country too because we pay for it mm-hmm. um, and it's an arm of us. So yeah, we do have the fucking right and the duty, Barry. And then on top of that, yeah, it is pretty crazy. I don't see any other countries that are based on the, you know, on apartheid regime, based on the daily theft of indigenous land mm-hmm. and implementing not only a colonial occupation that's illegal under international law, but maintaining a brutal siege of 2 million people. That's going to be uninhabitable in a year that they're sniping children and medics and and amputees that actually isn't happening anywhere else in the world. So like, why are you so focused on Israel? Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just so obvious that what she's trying to do. And I think the reason why we included her on this neocon update is because she does seem like she is sort of a neocon emissary as dumb as she came off that interview. She does seem to be like, the new Jamie Kerchick and the fact that she's associated herself and given this sort of name, the intellectual dark web to these, these figures, it seems like a deliberate attempt for like neoconservative ideology to sort of infiltrate or attach itself to those, those sort of forces. And I only saw a hint of this happening a couple of years ago where there was someone from the American enterprise Institute um, an older woman, I, I don't remember her name, who's also very close with Bill Kristol, um, who was writing a lot of papers for the American Enterprise Institute on like social justice warriors and trans issues and things like that, and how the liberal movement is hypocritical on these issues about race. And she actually went on tour with Milo Yiannopoulos and Steven Crowder a couple of Ew. years ago. So I kind of see Barry Weiss as trying to do something similar. Where it's like there is, you know, we're, we've gotten so used to the neocons trying to merge with the liberal class and like like anti-racism and stuff like that. But there's another side of it too. Neoconservatism is a virus. So it doesn't just stay in one area. It spreads. And this Barry Weiss figure seems to be trying to spread it and include people like Sam Harris and like create a little th- like collective and elevate them too. Like Jordan Peterson is like not just a fringe YouTube figure. He's got like monk debates now and stuff. And he's being included in think tank talks at like the CFR and stuff like that. So this is not... Unbelievable. Yeah. So there's a weird merger on that end happening too. So I I don't know. I mean, I think that that's why this sort of fits in the neoconservative... 
Yeah, and plus she's trying. Yeah, she's the anti-Trumper, anti-wall, pro-Zionist, like weird neocon. So it's like playing yeah. on liberals' heartstrings and, For and sure. using all these weird arguments that the neocons have rebranded classical themselves liberal, into. Abby. Yeah, classical, she's a classical liberal. liberal, like Dave Rubin. So she's kind of the, yeah, she's like the firebrand generation of the neocons rebranding for goddamn fourth iteration. They've adopted tactics from like newer marketing and social media. And they're like, why just do one new iteration update? Like, why not just do like a bunch of them at once? Update and do like an iteration for every genre out there. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, why not? No, I was just going to say really quickly about Barry Weiss. I love her existence because she... um, She's known for just being trolled. It's like she's known for her absolute shit takes. And now that I know actually how she can articulate herself and explain her views, she's so pathetic. She's really one of those people that like you really should stick with just writing. Yeah. Because oh, no. you she cannot. Off... Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there are some people like that, you know, who are great writers. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying she's a great writer by any means. I mean, yeah, even yeah, yeah. Jimmy Kirchick's a better writer and his purple prose and like abuse of purple <laughs> prose was like out of control in his writings. He was a fucking hack. What I was pleased to see, and when I, when she went on there, I was like, oh my God, this is bad because Joe Rogan's audience is going to hate her, not because they hate her politics, but because they see her as like an establishment hack and they're, they already get that kind of right wing meat injected in their brain from the Jordan Petersons, from the Ben Shapiros, from the Steven Crowders. So it's like having this kind of like intellectualized version of that doesn't jive with them. And it it, it indeed didn't because she got actually the most down votes out of any guest he's ever had on. Yeah. I thought I had the most down votes by having half down, half up. And she got like, oh, I don't know, like 75%. More, yeah. yeah. So I think, that's I what's think, funny about it. And I think Joe Rogan's audience uh, like they have, they're savvy enough to know when someone from like the establishment right. is coming on to just spout propaganda. Cause not saying that Jordan Peterson's not establishment, but it's like, you know, it's like even, it's it just too obvious when. Yeah. It's like, like we're talking Rice. about the establishment, yeah. like straight up New York times. But speaking of different genres of, of the things <laughs> neocons are moving into and trying and exploring woke Bill Crystal is now a thing that Bill Crystal is woke on the beat, a terrible show on MSNBC that probably no one watches with Ari Melber. Um, Bill Crystal and 90s uh, R&B um, hip-hop artist Fat Joe had a bromance. And Ari Melber is showing hilarious little uh, short vignette about how Fat Joe and Bill Crystal are the best of buds and they're going to get along and, and fight Trump together. Bill and Joe, cool. Um, it really did feel like they were pitching a reality show. It yeah. was so forced, so weird. It was like, you're telling me Fat Joe is friends with Bill Crystal? Like, what are you talking about? This is obviously like some weird PR stunt. Yeah, and you can watch nuts. the video. We'll link to it on the timeline. It's just insane because there's an actual print headline on MSNBC uh, right now, um, aside from the video we just described, you can click on a link and read a story on MSNBC with the headline literally titled Woke Bill Crystal and Fat Joe Cruise New York. And it just shows them like <laughs> walking around New York talking to people on camera. They're cruising, dude. Fat Fucking Joe and Bill Crystal cruise creepy. together. Yeah. Cruising with Crystal and Joe and Fat yeah. Joe. And you know what? It's hilarious to me that Bill Crystal, and I don't know if you saw this, the MAGA hat kid in the face of the Native American guy 
Trump, uh, Bill Crystal was like, it's too bad John McCain isn't here to tell Trump how to take a moral stand in this issue against like, you know, a, a, a heroic, like Native American figure. And I was thinking, dude, John McCain said that he will never forgive the gooks for as long as he lives. Right. What are you talking about? So, I mean, and Bill Crystal's smart enough to know that, that, that John McCain was a racist, that he had Sarah Palin as his VP. So what is Bill Crystal actually doing? I think that he's actually playing games now at this point, totally cynically rebranding like a chameleon because he's got, already gotten away with it. It's almost like he's abusing it because he, he was able to do it so well over the past few years that he's just like, fuck it. I'm just going to be like my dad now and be like, I'm a neo-Marxist now. Like, how do we know next year he's not going to be like, I am a socialist? Right. right. I mean, that's how crazy it's like his dad goes through all those things. And he's like, people used to call me a, you know, a Stalinist, a neo-Marxist, <laughs> a neo-Leninist, a neo-conservative, a neo-liberal. A Trotskyite. Yeah. It's like, so what does that actually mean? Irving Crystal was being paid by the CIA, my friends. <laughs> I mean, what is he? So what is he actually doing? Who goes through that many different iterations? You always hear that, though, like, oh, you were liberal when you were dumb, and then you're conservative when you grow yeah. a brain. And it's like it's kind of like a weird... But this is like, on a whole other level of chameleon morphine. It's like I the, know. It's like the secret character in Mortal Kombat chameleon that keeps flashing, like, <laughs> randomly to the different ninja characters. Well, because they believe that that legitimizes their policy now. It's like, no, 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 we used to think like you idiots. Uh-huh. No, it's but it but I mean in Bill Crystal's case it's so transparently fake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what's so interesting about it that he's, I mean, but then again MSNBC to promote him to this level is very odd. I mean, it seems like Bill Crystal's just every day he just paraded around the mainstream media. He's bigger than um, he's ever been right now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I never thought I would say that. I mean, he was still kind of a scourge, disliked when he would go on appearances. People would spar with him all the time. When I was making a very heavy agenda to three years ago not anymore he's completely accepted and loved i mean it really is one of the most surreal bizarre things about this era that we're living in yeah is the rebranding and reacceptance and open embrace for neoconservatives yeah and how they all are still acting like trump is the worst thing ever for them or just like how he's pulling away from the world order he's a isolationist i mean it's it's really nuts one of the things that I think has gotten lost in all this because all the neocons seem to hate Trump so much is that there is an actual class of neocon outliers who's actually pro-Trump. There was a split over the past couple of years. They split off into pro and anti-Trump. There's a lot more anti-Trump figures, but there are, you know, a few really important pro-Trump figures in there as well. Right. Like, tell, tell us who. I mean, some of those outliers are described in an article for the New York Review of Books by Stephen Wertheim. And his uh, article is actually titled, the long title for it is, Donald Trump has rescued neoconservatism, allowing some neocons to regain respectability by opposing him while revitalizing the neocon policy agenda from the White House. So I think that sums it up quite well on kind of both sides. And he goes through both ends of that neocon spectrum how the neocon forward policy agenda in some ways is thriving in the White House, while there's a class of neocons who oppose Trump who are actually legitimizing him in the process by opposing him. So I, thought, I think it's a great article. We'll link to it on the timeline. 
But some of those neocons, I mean, we've already talked to them a lot about them a lot, include people like Bill Bennett from PNAC, uh, James Woolsey from PNAC, Michael Ledeen from PNAC, Frank Gaffney. These are all neocons who used to be part of PNAC that are actually pro-Trump and not anti-Trump. So that Unbelievable. needs to be... Really flies in the face of that narrative, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, it needs to be uh, looked at into more closely by people who claim to be anti-neocon. I mean, Donald I mean, really, Trump Jr. Yeah. today was just retweeting Uncle Jimbo a bunch of times. Who Uncle Jimbo was a, Frank Gaffney's right-hand man for his Center for Security Policy think tank, I think it was called. His anti-Muslim think tank. It's just another cute talking point for this anti-interventionist Trump apologist crowd. Yeah. To just say like, we hate neocons. Neocons are bad. But it's like they just ignore all the neocons who are aligned with Trump and who Trump promotes. So. Of course. It's just meaningless. And then on January 9th, prop or not, that mysterious shadowy organization that got mysterious, you know, uh, mysteriously boosted by a Washington Post story making a blacklist of alternative media websites that were Russian propaganda. They had a Twitter tantrum, prop or not, had a Twitter tantrum about the word neocon and went on a multiple part thread about how the word neocon is actually a Russian disinfo psyop planted by the Russian government. Excuse me? Yeah. So that's how stupid this has all become. Um, what, as we, what was the, th- like, what did they even devolve into? I don't even know. I mean, I, yeah. I don't have the thread up in front of me, mm-hmm. but that was the gist of what they were saying. Just like how they were saying, if you say the word neocon, you really mean Jew. And it's like, what are you, did they say that too? talking or, about? No, no, not, not proper, yeah. not, but just like that was the whole critique on yeah, like of course. critiquing the Bush administration. Yeah. It's and like, that's okay. been something that they've been trying to push for a long, long time. But this is a new one where it's like now it just is a Russian propaganda talking point. It's like, oh, really? I didn't realize mm-hmm. Russia was meddling and, and fomenting discord. Oh, bef- during the Bush administration, even yeah. planting the word neocon. Oh, cool. Yeah. So Irving Crystal a was con. a time traveling Russian disinfo agent. Yeah. <laughs> coined the term to destroy reality on behalf of a Russian psyop under Putin. Fascinating. A couple days after that weird Twitter thing came out on January 12th. Jacob Helprin writes an article for the Washington monthly with the title neocons paved the way for Trump. Finally, one admits it. Um, This was a sort of thesis that I had in a very heavy agenda. Part three is that the neocons are to blame for Trump and the monster uh, sort of hawkishness that he represented, you know, that the, that he talked about wanting to kill Muslims and their families and that kind of thing. And that also they paved the way for it by creating such a, a, a terrible uh, smirk on, you know, America's standing with the Iraq war that Trump could so easily oppose it. So they paved it in multiple ways, you know, and make the establishment look bad by opposing such a horrific thing they had done. So this article is interesting. He gives Max Boot, though, way too much of a free pass. And I don't think Max Boot really does admit that he's responsible for paving the way for Trump. But what Max Boot's doing is interesting, too, just like Bill Crystal, He's virtue signaling his way into trying to represent himself as being a liberal. He's actually saying he's no longer even a conservative in this article, which is fascinating. Wow. So that's just, you know, completely phony. You know, Max Boot is someone who is very closely associated also with the Institute for the Study of War. Um, he's good friends with Kim Kagan. Uh, you know, one of the biggest military-industrial complex-funded think tanks in D.C. 
that does nothing but push for war and analyze war. A couple other neocon-related things having to do with media censorship, soft censorship that's happened recently. There is a this thing that's being written about more recently called Integrity Initiative in the UK, a state-sponsored disinformation fighting apparatus. There was an informative interview about it with guest Mohammed El-Mazi on the Around the Empire podcast. I'm discussing exactly what this is, and he breaks it all down. People should go check that out. And that kind of goes along with all these other, you know, disinformation fighting things that we've seen recently that go along with things like the Alliance for Securing Democracy, this neocon think tank that sort of tries to analyze the data flow of Russian disinformation bots online, they claim, by analyzing Twitter accounts. Oh um, even though they won't God. disclose what the bots are. But NewsGuard um, is something new. It's kind of a newer iteration, the newest evolution in this sort of stifling information online, soft censorship. It is a new company that specializes in prop or not fake news watchdog style filtering of what they call fake news. It's actually a web extension plugin that shows you a color-coded grade for every news resource hyperlink or news website that you're on. Unbelievable. They give RT a red rating and oh Voice of America a green rating. Who's they also, behind it? Um, who's behind it? Well, yeah. people who sit on their board are, include Tom Ridge, Michael Hayden, and Obama oh advisor Richard God. Stengel. They also give Fox News a green rating and Drudge Report a red rating, which is interesting. It is basically... The, the people who are behind this company say it is designed to replace Google, Facebook, and Twitter's internal fake news auditing departments. That it's meant to be like a sourced out thing that these companies in, and, uh, can sort of pass the responsibility onto. And we just did an interview with uh, Whitney Webb of Press News who just did a big expose on NewsGuard, what this is. And she sort of deduces that it's actually really convenient for these companies if they can have a company like NewsGuard because then these companies aren't directly responsible for what they decide to filter out. They can pass the blame on to someone else. So that's a kind of a smart idea if that's what this is going to evolve into. Definitely check out that uh, previous episode of Media Roots Radio that we did. I just wanted to say something about that really quick. It's so frustrating because it's like the notion of this is genius, you know, try to have some sort of like extension that really filters and helps your media literacy understand what's fake news and what's not. And it's just so sinister that these corporations align with like CIA officials yet again um, and working with tech companies are doing this to weed out alternative media and, and crush dissenting voices under the guise of media literacy. It's just, it's shocking because so many people are going to to download this, you know, thinking, like wanting wanting to get a more honest views and more honest news because they don't understand how the media works and how it censors things. So it's just like now we're up against a much bigger wall um, to try to, you know, explain what's going on and get our information out there. I, I can't recommend DuckDuckGo enough as an extension as well because it removes all the algorithms and you can still use search engines, but if you have DuckDuckGo um, accompanying it, you you know, all the algorithms are gone. So you'll have a raw feed of search results in your area without any interference. Yeah. So that's but what that I use. But that still probably doesn't change the fact that Google is deliberately deranking alternative news websites. Right, right, 
Right. So we don't even know really right. what's under the hood is going on there. We can just tell how much it's changed, especially YouTube. YouTube is the most obvious. So I've actually heard an interesting suggestion since Google's search engine is still better than the YouTube search engine. Somebody suggested using Google or another search engine to search YouTube for results. Like if you're looking for specific videos, because the YouTube search engine itself internally is fucked. Like they've totally ruined it. I just tried to look up Abby Martin meets the Venezuelan opposition and it didn't even show up in the first. Oh, yeah. 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 No, all that shit would have showed up even for when I was doing this um, Anthrax podcast. And by the way, that's still in progress. uh, Part two of that. But even when I was trying to do that, I was finding it extremely difficult to find clips that I would always know what to search for to find them as the number one result. Like I had to go, I, I couldn't even find them anymore. Really obvious that they've doctored the search results to hide alternative media or anything deemed now 9-11 conspiracy related. They actually put a Wikipedia link to 9-11 on my anthrax, American anthrax film. So that's what they do now. Unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. Explain what that is because that's crazy. I just saw that on another video that I was watching. Well, they didn't, you know, it kind of went under the radar, what I'm describing, but they had already announced and it was in the news that they were going to start saying that companies like Telesaur or Al Jazeera or Russia Today, they were going to put a disclaimer saying this, you know, if it's for Russia Today, it would say this uh, channel is wholly or partially funded by the Russian government in big letters underneath the video. So that's already something that's been happening for a while. But then they started doing things to like conspiracy videos. Yep. Or yep. videos that were taking an alternative point of view on 9-11, for example. They would link to the, actually, not the Wikipedia entry, the Encyclopedia Britannica entry for 9-11. That's it's so bizarre. It is very bizarre. Um, and I only noticed that because it was on one of my videos about anthrax, the anthrax attacks. Oh, my God. So, yeah, if you just mention 9-11 as, like, a keyword or a tag, it's just going to throw up the Encyclopedia Britannica, like, definition of 9-11. Yeah, it's very, very convenient, so I guess. I, I don't even know. I mean, it would make def- more sense if it was Wikipedia, though. Like if Jimmy Wales, some sort of, had this partnership with YouTube. Yeah, it it would make hmm. more sense. I'm so it's just so ruined. <laughs> but speaking of um, you know, nine eleven related things, something pretty exciting happened recently, and people who have been following nine eleven conspiracy or nine eleven truth for a long time had mixed reactions to this, and I can understand why. This hacking group called the, the Dark Overlord promised to release over three gigabytes of internal 9-11 related documents from before, during, and after the time of 9-11 that would shed new light on the attacks that were not meant for public consumption. And they said there were some explosive things in this archive Apparently, and from what I from when I last checked, only three layers of the ten layers of these files have been decrypted so far with a with a key that they've given out. They've released the whole archive; it's all encrypted, and they've only allowed people to decrypt like three layers of it so far. And apparently, their demands are that they want a certain amount of Bitcoin ransom money to either decrypt these files for the public or to not decrypt them, meaning to hide them. And so far, they've gotten enough Bitcoin money to release them. But they're also letting the people who want these documents hidden to pay them ransom also to keep them hidden. So this is not an altruistic, 
group that's behind 9-11 revelations, they're playing weird games and they're and it's very bizarre what they're doing. But the one thing that I cannot deny is that the documents seem completely real. They're not from any previous 9-11 or internal leak. And they are mostly documents from internal law firms, legal memos pertaining to 9-11 related lawsuits. I think anybody who's interested in that's, that as a subject should definitely check them out and to look into this and to follow, you know, these leaks as they come out. What, do you, what did you take away from them? Like, what was your biggest? My biggest takeaways? thing was that a lot of people, especially lawyers at that time, were openly discussing alternate theories about what happened on 9-11 early on after the event because it wasn't societally taboo to question things yet. Because you have to imagine that people wanting to sue each other or defend themselves in court are going to bring up things to contradict things that weren't set in stone yet as the whatever the official narrative. They're going to contradict or they're mm-hmm. going to come up with counter arguments for things. So for example, one of the lawsuits, I guess, against some of the airlines in there, they had legal memos talking about an apparent recording that existed between a male flight attendant on one of the hijacked planes and a 911 operator describing the male flight attendant saying that someone brought a gun on the plane, which is very fascinating because we've only read about, you know, I've read actually about all the phone calls that were made from the planes. And this is the first time I've actually heard this story. So where did this come from? Is it just an urban legend? Why is a lawyer or someone working for one of these law firms writing about this? That's really odd. Yeah. Maybe that's worth following up on. If one of these hijackers was actually able to sneak a loaded gun or a gun on his person in the plane. And they covered it up. That's that's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's huge. <laughs> Someone else, you know how it's become like sort of, oh, you're a conspiracy theorist for wondering why the planes were under capacity or asking the question because the planes were normal capacity. Like that's just bullshit. One of the lawyers in one of these things, again, in the, in the lawsuit, I guess, against some of these airlines was wondering the same thing. Why were the planes so under capacity and wondering if the hijackers worked with other people who bought up multiple plane tickets to keep them empty near the cockpit? So Whoa. that's interesting because people are sort of mocked for asking, just asking the question why the planes were so low capacity. Whoa. This lawyer was asking the same question. And then another thing, I don't remember which law firm or which lawsuit this one was from, but this was one of the more interesting things is one of the, somebody in one of these internal memos refers to the military intervening with Flight 93 as if it's a fact. Yeah, that's, that's the big one that I took away from it because that just, I mean, then you have to basically ask why did the U.S. government create a story out of thin air about passengers taking down the plane themselves. And that story always stunk and w- and was, and I'm not saying that the people on the plane were fake or they didn't call their relatives, but the story itself seemed very bizarre that these passengers heroically took down this plane and then that Paul Greengrass shaky cam movie came out about it. I mean, it, the whole thing is odd, you know, just if we're isolating 9-11 to that. So, and yeah. So, and so, I mean, can we safely say that there was military interference from the documents? I don't think so. Yeah. Because, the, again, these are the lawyers trying to create 
alternate arguments and things to like prop up their potential lawsuits. So Mm -hmm. I think it just shows an interesting insight into how people back then really early on after the event were not afraid to speculate about what might've happened or to even suggest things that they had heard in the media that later kind of got brushed to the side. You know, listen to Dan Rather on 9-11. I mean, he's saying things that now are considered kooky tinfoil hat shit. But he was just, from a gut reaction, just saying what he was seeing. To me, that's interesting to go back and realize that there were a lot of valid questions that we just were told later to just, no, don't ask those. Uh, It's really easy to see how the media can control the narrative and how you can just erase history and erase kind of that gut reaction that people have that We've you been see with your own eyes. And I, and I, you know, uh, we, it's almost like they have gaslit us into thinking we were crazy or dumb for questioning these things. Exactly. And I can see that working on certain people. Exactly. It hasn't worked on me or you. I think a lot of people have been conditioned over time, but even just like not talking about it. Right. That's also something like, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of different angles to it. Definitely check out these Dark Overlord leaks. I'm surprised WikiLeaks isn't on the ball on these and actually organizing them and making them searchable for the public like they've done with all these other leaks. Is it because they didn't leak them to WikiLeaks or what? No, WikiLeaks has done this before with other public leaks that have a public... They did it with the 9-11 pager leaks, and I don't even know if they were the original people to get those. So they've done a 9-11 related leak before, which has actually been quite helpful with my research because it shows a very specific timeline of newswire stories on the day of 9-11. That's, for example, where I knew for sure that the media was all echoing you know, that Palestinians were responsible for the attacks based on one wire story that came through. Unbelievable. Yeah. You know, part of this uh, Trump-Syria deception has to do with him trying to appeal to sectors of the population that don't like war, which is such a, you know, who likes war? Nobody (laughs) really likes war. And people are growing more increasingly weary of war. I believe that, that that is like a growing sentiment in this country. However, we have all passively accepted sort of these forever wars, war on terror. But a full theater war would be really hard to get public support for at this point, I think, in time. Unless we were directly attacked or something like that. But Rand Paul and Trump have been having this strange bromance recently, which I just find absolutely nauseating. And there was an article from January 3rd on InfoWars called Rand Paul Joins Trump in Fight Against the Deep State. So this is just how stupid InfoWars is <laughs> becoming. We talk about it too much even, but oh it's terrible. God. Oh, my God. And Rand Paul is still posturing himself as the most anti-war member in the Senate. Right. And he goes on the Jake Tapper show, debunk, you know, because right, basically what Trump did is he announced during Christmas time this surprise, we're going to pull out of Syria. We're going to pull the troops out of Syria. And then he also floated the idea of we're going to bring all the troops home. He said in like a video from the White House that he had filmed, including Afghanistan. So this was like something he had just randomly announced. And all these people got super excited. Rand Paul got super excited. And he goes on Jake Tapper to sort of argue on behalf of why we should pull out. Um, And he actually did make some good points about anti-intervention in general. 
but he also made some very dumb points and even leaned in Islamophobia territory about why we need to get out of the Middle East. He didn't say they're going to kill each other, but he kind of was sort of leaning in that territory. And so I thought it was not, you know, it didn't look to me like that strong of an anti-war position. Um, and Rand Paul also says that ISIS has been defeated, so that's why we should leave. And I just find that kind of cartoonish. It's like, is, is ISIS really defeated? You know, have we really, can we really declare victory? Like he was even claiming we should declare victory in Afghanistan. What? And That's he crazy. even said on the Jake Tapper show, he would have voted for the AUMF even knowing what he knows today because it was only meant to invade Afghanistan. So sadly, this is the best anti-interventionist in the wait, Senate. Wait, 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 but hold on. That doesn't make any sense because knowing what we know today, it wasn't just used to invade Afghanistan. So he's saying that he would have supported it because it was only meant to invade Afghanistan, but then we just have used he it to like bomb seven Muslim Technicality countries? argument claiming that the original doctrine set forth with the AUMF really only technically allowed them to go into Afghanistan. So he still would have voted for it. So yeah, it doesn't even make sense really what he's saying, which I don't even think is true. I mean... No, uh, that can't true. be true. No, it's not. Maybe in some kind of like scholarly academic argument, because he's like a, you know, he's obsessed with the Constitution. I don't even know what he's trying to say. But just a little sampling of what he has been tweeting with about. And you know, he went on this tweet storm mocking John Bolton. He I would hate to be John Bolton right now, man. Yeah. Keep like trying to so keep us satisfied. in these wars. <laughs> oh my so God. here's things he tweeted later on, you know, after the new year. He expressed excitement about Trump making this announcement. He tweeted, I agree with real Donald Trump. It's time to declare victory in Afghanistan and bring our troops home. We spend $46 billion a year in Afghanistan. How about we take that money and build roads and bridges and strengthen our border security here in America? Hashtag America first. Wow. So he's already like trying to mold his own rhetoric with Trump's, which just seems very... Well, he's so desperate. It's so desperate. Do. Yeah, he's trying really, really hard. Robbie is yeah. very sad. And we know that he recently said that really disgustingly racist, dehumanizing thing about let them just fight each other. Well, here's let what them he actually fight. It's like It's like the meme, let them fight. So, so, so I was already like, why does he sound like Trump, the fake anti-interventionist? Because Rand Paul actually used to have stronger, more principled anti-intervention stances for as terrible as he is on a lot of other shit. So the, the same day he tweeted again about Afghanistan, Sunnis have been killing Shia since the massacre of Karbala in 680 AD. If we wait until they stop killing each other, we'll stay for a thousand years or more. I agree with real Donald Trump. Bring the troops home. So why is he trying to appeal to this like sort of racist sector about why we should pull out of the Middle East? I mean, I know he's a conservative, he's, he's a Republican, but he didn't used to talk this way. I think because he's getting a lot of good feedback from Trump's base and from these anti-interventionists or alleged so-called anti-interventionists. And so he's just playing back into their rhetoric. Well, so that's, that's what I thought at first. But then it turns out that he was actually joining Donald Trump for a private meeting at the White House that same day. Well, there you go, Robbie. He says he tweets the same day later on more I'll be joining real Donald Trump shortly at the White House. I stand with the president in putting hashtag America first. Bring our troops home and declaring victory. 
Declaring victory. Declaring victory meaning that the Taliban's stronger than they've ever been before, that they control more territory, and that there's like very close to a peace accord. Yeah. Yeah. That is surreal. That's some surreal gaslighting from Rand Paul. Well, very, it's just very like, strange. Why is he bowing down to Trump and, and saying things that he normally would not say? I, and then because this he is what ta- he said he later that day. that power, after the baby. He, he tasted that power. You don't think that he likes sitting next to the president well, in the Oval does, Office Abby. talking about this shit? No, I mean, that, he was that's kind of like a joke. I mean, think about it. He was kind of like a joke before. Well, I'm going to mention something about that later. I did a little interesting look back at the debates between him and Trump, and I found some very bizarre things that I think need to be talked about. But he, here's what he said after the meeting I have never been prouder of President Donald Trump. In today's meeting, he stood up for a strong America and steadfastly opposed to foreign wars. Putting America first (laughs) means declaring victory in Afghanistan and Syria. President Trump is delivering on his promises. Can you imagine Rand Paul saying anything like that about Obama when he pulled the troops out of Iraq? And and just an FYI, in case people haven't really done the deep dive on this, um, Trump announced the withdrawal of troops he himself added to Syria. So we're talking about 2,200 troops he himself added. We're talking about 8,000 or so troops that he himself added to Afghanistan that he's removing. Um, And on top of that, simultaneously announcing the indefinite extension of the criminal invasion of Iraq, that he has no plans to stop. So where, what is this fantasy that Rand Paul is buying into here? Well, I mean, he's buying into the fantasy of, basking in the glow of Trump and not wanting to remove his access. So it'll be interesting to see what Trump does moving forward. I mean, Dennis Kucinich, the point against him during the Obama administration is he took that private plane ride with Obama and changed his holdout vote um, for Obamacare. And people never let him forget it. Yeah. So what, let's see how this shapes out. I mean, it seems pretty fucking bad. You know, and we knew that Rand Paul was not a principled guy when he tried to get you fired, literally tried to get you fired from RT when you first started working there and endorse Mitt Romney for president. And, and strip my press forget, credentials and everyone at RT's press credentials. Yes. And he tried to get uh, the Iran deal stopped during the Obama administration by signing on to that Tom Cotton, Bill Crystal letter. So we we already knew that he had severe problems. This is what uh, Rand Paul did after he had this meeting with Trump. He did a little press tour promoting Trump as an anti-interventionist, anti-war guy. So he, oh my God. he told Breitbart, this is what Breitbart reported after he talked to them, a leading ally of Donald Trump, Senator Rand Paul, told reporters in a brief conference call after a meeting with the president on Wednesday that Trump is planning withdrawals of U.S. forces in Syria and Afghanistan and will instead reinvest U.S. resources wasted there in rebuilding the United States. Oh, really? Why haven't we seen any sort of resources reinvested to rebuild anything yet? What a convenient little talking point Rand Paul just yeah. pulled out of his fucking ass. Yeah, I ass. like all these public rebuilding projects. What, what right. Is, he's a libertarian. He doesn't even, he's not even really right. for doing those kinds of like public works things. What is he even Well, we know about, how much dude? Rand Paul's soul is worth and it's just a fucking tweet from Donald Trump. Yeah, or a private meeting with Donald Trump. That's what it is. I mean, he already had a meeting with uh, Trump and Mike Pompeo about a year ago where he said, they've assured me that they're not for war. Like, I remember this like a year ago. So this has like been something that's been happening for a while, this little bromance. 
You're going to close out this session now, Robbie, talking about how Trump has changed his mind, changed the narrative on the actual withdrawal timetable of Syria um, many, many times. Um, so take it away. But, but um, before I go, I just wanted to say that Tulsi Gabbard has come out um, opposing the Venezuela coup. She says that she stands unequivocally opposed to what's going on. Let Venezuela decide their own fate. I think Ocasio-Cortez tweeted something denouncing it, retweeted someone else. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. We'll have to see what the you know different people say. But um, but yeah, I'll close out the episode and um, have a good one, Abby. Thanks so much. Later. And remember when remember when Trump was asked uh, about. You know, why is he changing the withdrawal timetable? And he just said, you know, when you have a threat, he like changed the whole conversation. And he was like, you know, when Obama didn't actually bomb Assad when he crossed the red line, he was like, you know, I like to carry out on my threats. He's like, when you have a threat, you got to carry out on the threat. Remember that when he was asked about why he's not pulling out troops as soon as he did? And I was like, why did you just segue this to basically bragging about how you bombed Assad? That was a really creepy, creepy video yeah it was really creepy so take it away all right so just back to the Rand paul thing for a second that same day that he started doing this press tour he went on fox and friends he went on fox news a few different times and he's definitely trying to spread this idea he wants to promote this idea obviously trump wants to also that trump is an anti-interventionist and I'm going to discuss a little bit in a little bit here why I think Trump and Obama actually share more similarities in the way that they want their public image to be perceived uh, than most people realize. Like they have more in common, actually, than I previously thought. I thought they were just polar opposites, totally different styles. But I think they actually share a lot of similarities. And I'll explain what I mean maybe like 15 minutes if you want to fast forward to that. On January 17th, day after this little press tour he went on, Rand Paul again just says something completely fucking idiotic about Afghanistan. It's like his rhetoric just keeps getting worse and worse, mixing together, you know, imperialist crap with anti-intervention talking points. I mean, you talk about a toxifying, poisoning the well effect, lowering the bar to the lowest point of what being anti-war means. Listen to this. His tweet starts out on January 17th with, we've won the war in Afghanistan. We need to learn how to declare victory and come home. We shouldn't be there nation building. Real Donald Trump gets this. But so many in Washington are lost and confused. Well, you know who else sounds confused? You do, Rand. You sound like a fucking stupid motherfucker for saying we've won the war in Afghanistan. How have we won anything? We got our asses destroyed by the Taliban and other armed people with Kalashnikovs. That's pretty pathetic. What that really means is that all this military might that we talk about, you know, even if you're an imperialist and you're a neocon and want to build up the military the largest levels have ever been, look what happened in Afghanistan, man. We can't control that country. We can't invade it and, and think we're going to be able to occupy it and take it over. They've been fighting a hell of a fight against us the whole time with way lower budget and way lower resources than we have. I mean, it's it, the, the imbalance is ridiculous, and they're still kicking our fucking asses, and rightfully so. 
So to say we've won the war in Afghanistan, we need to declare victory? What an egoistic crap statement to make. No, we, we need to pull out and come home immediately, but we don't declare victory. That's something a child would do. So it sounds like he's trying to appeal to Trump's childlike mind here. But one more thing about Rand Paul that I think is worth mentioning, and you know, this may come off as sounding a little ridiculous to people who've never read anything about this before, but I'm just going to say it now because I think it's something worth mentioning. Megyn Kelly, who I don't personally like, I think she's pretty bad. She was the host, the moderator of the first Republican primary debate. In the main field was Rand Paul, Donald Trump, Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, Chris Christie, a few other people. I think John Kasich, maybe. But a story that came out, um, she wrote a book that was leaked to the press uh, right after Trump got elected, before inauguration. The book was obviously already written before Trump won the election. What's interesting about her book is she hints at being possibly poisoned by somebody that was either under the control of Roger Ailes or possibly even Donald Trump on the morning of the debate. She became extremely physically ill on the morning of the debate. She had terrible food poisoning. She got a call from Donald Trump personally the night before saying that he knew what the first debate question was going to be and told her that, he sh that she shouldn't ask it. Um, someone leaked it to him. She thinks it was Roger Ailes. She doesn't know if the driver that came to pick her up that day, who inexplicably really wanted her to drink this coffee that he brought, which was unusual in and of itself, she said. She doesn't know who that guy was working for. But in her book, she alludes to this guy working for someone who maybe even wanted to poison her. It sounds maybe really paranoid that she thought this, but it's just an interesting thing that I think if there's anything to it, and also worth noting, she completely backpedaled on this after her book came out and after the media leaked these parts of her book. She said, no, 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 I wasn't saying I thought it was poison. No, no, I wasn't saying I thought that the debate question was leaked from Roger Ailes to Trump. Um, I was just saying I got really sick and that the debate was really hard for me. But actually, if you read her book, she is very much so alluding to the fact that she thought that she had been poisoned. Guess who else was deathly ill on that debate day? The only other person who participated in that debate who got the same illness that Megyn Kelly got was Rand Paul. And I find that interesting because of all the people to get sick on that debate stage that day, just who would have gained from knocking out Megyn Kelly and Rand Paul? Well, maybe Donald Trump had the most to gain from doing that. Because Donald Trump immediately on that first debate acted like he was the only person on that stage who was anti the Iraq war. So he already planned to represent himself as this anti-interventionist. The only other person on that debate field who even had that platform was Rand Paul. So I, I find that an interesting coincidence. If two random people got food poisoning that day and Megyn Kelly really didn't think there was anything to that, like she alluded to in her book, 
it's an interesting coincidence that the two people that get really ill that day, and one of them almost had to pull out of the debate, Megyn Kelly, and the other one actually looked pretty under the weather, Rand Paul. It's an interesting coincidence that both of them got really sick that day. So, and I just wonder if that ever popped into Rand Paul's head, wondering how he got sick, and, and also connecting that together with the fact that Megyn Kelly alluded to being poisoned in her book. It's just quite strange that he's sucking up to Donald Trump this much now. And other interesting things that I picked up I, from the rewatching some of these debates is he actually told Rand Paul as a retort that um, that he paid he gave him a bunch of money once that Donald Trump actually paid for one of Rand Paul's you know gave him a bunch of donations for one of his campaigns back in the day so I didn't even remember that so there's a relationship there and Trump actually really went after Rand Paul during those debates early debates and really was really kind of focused in on knocking him down so I thought that was interesting that he kind of went out of his way to attack Rand Paul on several occasions, considering what's happening now in their little bromance together. So just closing out this episode without Abby here, we'll just recap and go into the newest updates having to do with Trump's supposed plan that's already happening, supposedly, to withdraw the troops from Afghanistan and Syria. Um, We already talked about how He's not really with even withdrawing all the troops. He's only withdrawing mostly the troops that he put in, in Syria and in Afghanistan. He's still keeping half of the troops there. I mean, there's there's a whole lot of stuff that you should listen to our last episode um, to understand about how this, this pullout plan is actually kind of a, a farce. And even though pulling out troops is a great thing and it should be done, that doesn't mean that Trump is pulling back the U.S. empire and ending all the wars. We are in a forever war on terror where there's endless bombing going on in several different countries at once. Trump hasn't said anything about ending the bombing in Syria, just ending the troop presence in Syria. That's all he's talked about. So before Christmas, while Trump is in the middle of this, you know, government shutdown thing for the wall, and while he's still embroiled in several scandals, like the hush money payments to Stormy Daniels, he still does this apparent Xmas surprise and announces he's bringing the troops home from Syria and Afghanistan. It was widely celebrated by anti-interventionists. Even some on the left celebrated it. Some celebrated it optimistically and enthusiastically. And some celebrated it cautiously like uh, Jeremy Scahill and Gareth Porter. People like uh, me and Abby were sort of like, why is everybody celebrating? We didn't feel like Trump, the quote-unquote anti-interventionist, was actually kicking in. We, We saw something different. And as Abby points out in her Empire Files episode, you know, he's only bringing in the troops that he himself put in. But this pullout plan was a brash, unexpected announcement. It didn't necessarily seem thought out. And it doesn't really matter to me how thought out something like this is. And on some level, I couldn't care if Trump is doing this for the right reasons or deciding to. I think what's more important is to analyze how serious is Trump actually about this? And is he really going to follow through on just this pullout specifically? We already know that he's not talking about ending the war on terror, ending the bombings, in these multiple countries, ending the drone strikes. He's just talking about troops. So let's focus just on, is he serious about really ending the troop presence in these countries? Well, a few days after this announcement that Trump made, Mattis resigned. The news ties the resignation to his Syria announcement. Senators like Lindsey Graham and other hawks started to freak out and put heat on Trump 
Then right before New Year's, Bolton started contradicting some of Trump's statements in public about the pullout, that it's not going to be an immediate pullout and all this stuff. And quickly after that, Lindsey Graham had this to say after privately meeting with Trump. Uh, Graham said, Some things I didn't know that make me feel a lot better about where we're headed in Syria. What did Trump tell him? Is Trump spinning it one way to Lindsey Graham and another way to the public like a salesman? Trump continued to tweet stuff like this throughout the last couple of weeks. He said, quote, I am the only person in America who could say that I'm bringing our great troops back home with victory and get bad press. It is fake news and pundits who have failed for years that are doing the complaining. If I stayed in endless wars forever, they would still be unhappy. And, you know, obviously this is where Rand Paul got this rhetoric from. The bullshit statement that we achieved victory. I mean, Jesus Christ, what a stupid thing to say. For so many reasons, even if ending the wars is a good thing. I mean, what does he mean ending the forever wars? Like ending the war on terror? Never even said anything about that. After the new year, a little later, Lindsey Graham had this to say after Trump actually made a visit to, surprise visit to Iraq. He said, the president's trip to Iraq was eye-opening. The commanders there told him that ISIS was in a world of hurt, but not completely destroyed. And in response to Trump's original idea to do the withdrawal in 30 days, which has apparently now been indefinitely extended, Graham said to the Wall Street Journal, I think we're slowing things down in a smart way. But the goal has always been the same, to be able to leave Syria, to make sure ISIS never comes back. Our partners are taken care of and Iran's contained. I think we are in a pause situation. What we're reevaluating is what's best way to achieve the president's objectives of having people pay more and do more. So it sounds like Trump is again talking out both sides of his mouth, trying to have his cake and eat it too. Not too dissimilar from the way that Obama wanted to present himself on pulling back on the U.S.'s overbearing nature in world affairs, while still doing it covertly behind the scenes. So it's strange in a way, the more Trump is in office, the longer he's in office, the more his own personal image management versus policy reminds me of Barack Obama's personal image management versus actual policy. They both really wanted to cement these fake legacies of themselves as being peacemakers way too early on in the process without the real results, like the end of the Korean War for Trump or a closing Gitmo for Obama. I mean, maybe is this unique about both Trump and Obama that they actually share this similarity, that they're so concerned with their image of being peacemakers, that they care more about the image of being a peacemaker in the history books than they do about actually being peacemakers? Did previous presidents do this? I don't, I don't know, actually. But it's just strange to me that for as opposites as Obama and Trump seem to be, this is a similarity that they both strongly share. Trump on January 7th tweeted, Endless wars, especially those which are fought out of judgment, mistakes that were made many, many years ago, and those where we are getting little financial or military help from the rich countries that so greatly benefit from what we are doing, will eventually come to a glorious end. So there's a lot of qualifiers right there. Endless wars, especially those. So not all endless wars will end, but just certain ones that come with those qualifiers, I guess. Especially those ones, I guess. It's a strange statement, if you really look at it, even just taking it face value. It's a strange, strange statement. 
at this point, a lot of these weird Syria-focused anti-interventionists who only talk about Syria and jihadists in Syria and head choppers in Syria will still perpetuate this narrative that Bolton and forces under Trump were undermining him and trying to sabotage his plan to end the wars. So that whatever reason Trump has from backpedaling or slowing this down, it's Bolton's fault, not Trump's fault. And more stupidity, on January 14th, Bill Kristol tweeted, Last weekend, Trump went full Pat Buchanan on immigration and Ron Paul on foreign policy. Trump is really going Ron Paul on foreign policy? This narrative from the same neoconservative monsters that paved the way for Trump, it only really serves the perp to prop up this fantasy that Trump is an isolationist or anti-interventionist, a blatantly false premise contradicted by evidence. On January 15th, Pat Buchanan writes an article titled, Is Bolton Steering Trump into War with Iran? And I just don't understand this kind of thing where, again, it's like, is why is Bolton to blame here? Why isn't Trump steering himself into war with Iran? Why did Trump pick John Bolton? Is Bolton to blame for tricking Trump into picking John Bolton? I don't get this excuse making at all. I don't remember people who, who didn't want the U.S. to meddle in Ukraine blaming Victoria Newland and not Obama for what was going on. I remember people putting a lot of that heat on Obama. Rightfully so. Very interesting to just to see the way people are reacting to this and the hopeful attitudes by some people. That it's almost like they have been persuaded by Trump's own rhetoric. And I find that very troubling because we should be examining his actions, not his rhetoric. We already know his rhetoric is totally off the wall. He says things that hit on a gut level and are correct some of the time. He knows how to reach people on that level. He's smart like that. But what does he actually do? What are his actions? What is he doing? That's what we need to be looking at more. And that's why everybody should watch Abby's new Empire File series about Trump. Because that's primarily what it's about. His actions, not his rhetoric now. But also his rhetoric from the campaign of him telegraphing that he was going to be more hawkish and more neocon in very specific areas, like raising the military budget to the largest it's ever been, or killing the terrorists and their families. So we can't cherry pick. We can't be hopeful. Trump has been in there two years, and now he's helping prop up a coup happening in Venezuela against the elected Maduro government. So this is not an anti-interventionist presidency. It's not the best hope we've had since 9-11 to end the wars, as Jeremy Scahill seems to think it is. I don't know where these people are getting this hope from. Right now, we need to be very skeptical of people presenting themselves as anti-war and trying to pied piper us into things like wanting to go to war with China and Venezuela, like Posobiec and Tucker Carlson do. Jack Posobiec is now talking about China and how they're a threat in South America. I mean, this shit's as clear as day. I don't even care if they're part of some kind of Trump interference running network directly. That effectively runs interference for Trump's foreign policy to use, why don't we invade Maduro and take him out as a counter argument to why we shouldn't invade Assad, something that Tucker Carlson regularly does. That's really damaging. That bar is really low if you consider someone like that anti-war. That's a really low bar. I guess that's how I'll end the episode, and we'll, we'll keep updating people on what Trump is actually going to do. 
to remove troops if he does do that and if he follows through on that. Thanks for listening, everybody. And please consider donating to Media Roots Radio at patreon.com slash mediarootsradio. You can donate as little as $1 per episode. And in the month of January, we are putting out a bonus episode. Um, We will unlock it at a later date, but it is a bonus episode that is going to be half sort of reviews of movies and TV shows and different things that Abby and I have watched recently. And the other half will be a long-form review of an overview of the Unbreakable Trilogy and the new film by M. Night Shyamalan, Glass, with Leslie Lee from Struggle Session Podcast. Uh, Me and him are going to be breaking down Glass, giving our thoughts about it, sort of breaking down some of the layers of it, and hopefully it'll be an interesting discussion and uh, and you guys will, will dig that. So thanks for listening. Take care, everybody. 